Welcome to Reframed, a podcast created to educate, encourage, and inspire parents and professionals. The research is clear. Parenting a child that has a history of loss, abuse, neglect, or trauma requires parenting skills and insight to be reframed. We partner with child welfare experts to bring you evidence-based and research-driven information. Reframed host, Emily Moorhead, LPC, and guests strive to make an impact on our world by creating conversations about topics that are important to you, your family, and our communities. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Reframed. My name is Emily Moorhead, and I'm your host. Today, I'm joined with Bill Porter, who is the Director of Post-Adoption. Bill, tell us about yourself. Yeah, I'm the Director of Post-Adoption at Gladney. Uh, I've been um, at Gladney since 2013, and uh, just provide uh, post-adoption support to uh, families, to adoptees, to birth mothers. Um, I'm celebrating my 22nd year in the field um, in counseling and working with different um, populations. My first job was working at a drug and alcohol center 22 years ago, so it's hard to believe that it's uh, been that long. Uh, but it's a pleasure to be here with you. Bill, one of your passions is helping people understand their neurobiology. So tell me why that became a passion of yours. So, to be honest with you, I got my master's in counseling um, at UNT probably about 12 years ago, and it was a great program. We learned about um, uh, you know, how to really support uh, clients in need, provide empathetic listening, but there really wasn't anything about trauma, um, neurochemistry, neurobiology. There really, we really didn't study any of that, and just probably in the last 10 years, uh, through the work of uh, Dr. Karen Purvis, Dr. Bruce Perry, um, did did the concept of neurobiology really become um, one of my passions? And a lot of it is just um, the understanding of, you know, when we talk about depression or we talk about anxiety or we talk about maladaptive behaviors, understanding the root of all that um, is, and it, where it comes from, it's our neurochemistry, it's the neurons, it's the, the early pathways that were created in our childhood that then play out in problematic ways. And so for me, you know, I just, I, I was trying to address some of the issues, but I didn't really understand the root. And so really going back and learning more and more about neurobiology is just fascinating to me. It just gives me so much more insight um, and understanding as to why, you know, we have trouble with relationships or why, you know, sometimes managing our emotions are difficult. All those things that, you know, people are always trying to address, but, but in some ways they're addressing it sort of like, um, kind of like a Band-Aid without really going to the true wound. So. Uh, that's that's where where it all kind of started, and and it's still a, a very very big part of um, my passion, and also how how I help people, how I serve people um, who are in need. It seems like counseling and science don't always merge together, right? That counseling is more feely, science is is more like logic, and and so it's kind of a merging of the both worlds to understand the holistic picture of who we are as humans. So tell me a little bit about what neurobiological stress would look like if we were thinking about ourselves or, or a client that we were serving. Sure. So anytime um, that you go through what I would consider a, a hard time, a difficult time, something that takes you out of your ordinary, um, takes you into a more survival mentality, um, our bodies are designed um, to deal with that physiologically. So it doesn't matter, even though I may, you know, it, it doesn't matter. It, moving, um, traveling, any time that you do something that's out of the ordinary, um, it puts a neurological stress on you. 
Um, the reason that it, it's stressful is, is you have to understand what our neurology likes. Um, our neurobiology likes repetition. It likes things to be the same. Um, what happens is as we do the same things over and over again, um, sort of neural highways get formed in our, in our brain or in our neurology. And when I say neurology, I want to make sure I explain this correctly. It's not just our brain. Our neurology is made up of our frontal cortex, which is the front part. It also involves our limbic system. It involves our brain stem. There's uh, also involves our gut. There's a tons of neurons in our gut. Um, and then obviously it, it goes through the rest of our body. So when we're talking about the neurological system, you know, we may not, we may think our brain, but that's actually just one part of it. Um, and so our neurology likes repetition um, because what happens is as you get uh, repetition and consistency in our neurology, we start developing these neural highways of pathways of neurons that are consistent. The way you drive to work, the way you make your coffee, the way you dress in the morning, the way you fix your hair, all that repetition um, creates neurological highways in our mind and in our brain and in our body. The way you hit a baseball, that's all neurological pathways. I mean, it's, it's repetition. So anytime that we're thrown off, that our rhythm is thrown off, that our repetition is thrown off. Uh, what happens is, is our neurology responds in a stress response. It, it, it actually kind of runs all through our amygdala and our amygdala sort of says, which is sort of the, the uh, flight, flight or freeze response in our brain sort of says, something's different here. This isn't the same. Um, and so any stressful event, doesn't matter what it is, the death of somebody, um, you know, a, an illness, um, anything that has stress to it, um, our amygdala sort of says, okay, we need to prepare for this. Kind of the, um, you know, winter is coming type uh, response. And so what happens is our neurology changes. And for each person, it's different. Uh, for some people, they're excitatory sort of neurotransmitters and, and, and sort of stress hormones rush through their body. And so their neurological response is to be more prepared, ready to kind of fight or, or more anxious uh, manic, um, more emotions. Um, for other people, it could be the inhibitory, almost like the system kind of, kind of starts slowing down, um, where you you almost feel like an, under neurological stress, you may feel almost like you have a cloudy mind, like you can't think straight, or it may feel like you're almost like disassociating, like pulling away. Um, and then obviously the other ones um, may have sort of a kind of a mixture, but a but a more flight response instead of a getting ready to fight, it's more of the I need to get away. And so our, our neurology is just literally like, I'm trying to avoid everything. I want to get away from everything I can. Um, and so we notice this in different parts of our body. So it's not just in our brain that we experience neurological stress, because we do have that. We have racing thoughts or we have cloudy thoughts, uh, but also can be in our emotions. We have heightened emotions. We have strong emotions, or maybe we're numb emotionally. Maybe we're not, we don't have any responses emotionally. Um, or, or maybe uh, it also can involve our body. Like, how is our body responding? For example, a great one is like digestion. How are we digesting? Most of the time when, when children are under stress, if you pay attention, most of them get diarrhea. And the reason is, is because our neurology is on a heightened alert and digestion has become less important to a surviving body. Um, and so now the body is saying, okay, digestion is not that important. We have to survive. We got to get ready for the fight, flight, or freeze. So now digestion is less important. And all of a sudden, all the neurochemistry in our gut is literally saying, I don't know what to do with all this. So it's just kicking the food out, you know, and saying, we, we don't have time to digest this. And next thing you know, now our body is responding to stress. The way we sleep at night, uh, you know, some people are more sleepy and some people are less sleepy. Uh, you know, I know for me, when I'm under stress, I can't sleep. I get up at five in the morning, four in the morning, I wake up and all of a sudden my brain is racing. 
Um, so the, and that's basically our neurology preparing for stress. Uh, it's an adaptive response. It's not bad. Um, it, it, it protects us. It prepares us for what is to come. Um, and so that's kind of how you know, like, okay, something's going on. And, and that this is, something is different. And my neurology can tell, and now I'm responding that way. So how do we get assigned these patterns? So for example, there have been um, dangerous situations that I have had a fight response. Like I ran straight to the situation, wanted to handle it. And there's been another situation where I completely froze and just didn't handle it well. So how do these responses get assigned to us? Why does our body act this way? Yeah, so I mean, that that is a great question. And I think there's there's a couple answers to the question. The first thing is, all of this goes all the way back to our childhood, um, the way that we were engaged with, because really our neurology was really set up by our parents. Um, in those first few years um, is where our neurological systems were taught, do, do we need to get excited? How do we calm ourselves? Um, there's a concept called the external regulator where when our neurology gets sort of excited, the external regulator, who hopefully is our parents, teaches us how to calm our body, how to calm our neurology. And so for some people, if they didn't have an external regulator, then the neurology gets uh, excitatory but doesn't know how to calm itself. And then that's how a neurobiology, if left to its own devices, can almost become too excitatory, overexcitatory. Um, and then, um, and quite frankly, problematic that it's, it's too wound up. Um, but it, it all starts in our childhood. The ability to regulate emotions is a gift. The regulation of our emotions, the regulation of our neurobiology is a gift that's taught to us through our parents. It's something that we are gifted from our parents if, they, if we come from a good place, if we come from an ideal world. The truth is, is that for a lot of us, we may not have received that. We may not have received, uh, we may not have had parents who were good at helping us regulate ourselves. And so then we move into stressful situations and our regulation management, our regulation skills is, is haywire. We don't have the neurobiological stress to, the neuro, I say neurobiological uh, ability to manage it. Uh, I like to think of this, and I don't mean to get too um, like garage talk, but I kind of picture this like an electrical system, that if you have an electrical system uh, that's built with very fragile wires and you put a really fast, hard charge on that electrical system, what happens to those wires is they literally fry because the, the, the stress is too much. And so you get this like, I can't manage this. Um, or in the opposite would be like if you had an electrical current that's really insulated with a lot of, um, I don't know, you could say rubber and plastic and just things that really don't allow that current to go through the system then the system doesn't process the information correctly because it can't get the information. And so our neurons are pretty much the same. That sometimes if, that if we have too much going on and our system can't manage it, it literally fries our brain, we can't manage it. Or sometimes we have so much insulation that we're just numb to it and we can't feel anything. And a lot of that has to do with our childhood. Um, and so we, and we carry that into our adult life. We think that we're growing up but a lot of times those instinctual physiological responses that we that show up in a time of crisis they they're they're not uh, educated they're not in the higher part of our brain they're literally reactive and we're talking about like our historic prehistoric uh, survivalist reptilian brain that pops out 
Uh, a lot of times when you're in a survival thing, you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I responded that way, right? Or I can't believe I did that. And what that is, is your frontal cortex trying to figure out what the heck your brainstem just did. And the reason why is because your brainstem is so reactionary and so quick to survive that it, it's functioned on a different set of, uh, um, uh, of beliefs, a different set of history, a different set than what you think your brain is. And so that's where we get those crazy responses. And, and I can't tell you, you're exactly right. I, I can't tell you how my response is going to be to a situation because that's my frontal cortex trying to figure it out. And in a reactionary crisis mode, guess what? That's, this is offline. It's this part of my neurology. It's survival. So how does this play in with mindfulness? Mindfulness is obviously a hot topic right now. I've seen a thousand books called Mindful Parenting or Mindful Marriages or Mindful Relationships. How do these live together? Um, is there positives and negatives in that relationship? What does that look like? Okay. So in a moment of, of challenge, in a moment of stress, in a moment of grief, in a moment of sadness, um, our neurobiology is going to, in a sense, react to its survivalist tendencies, to its, its, its sort of DNA code um, that, that sort of has a uh, kind of a natural response. And my response obviously is different than your response. Um, and, and that's actually good. The issue is, is that if not managed correctly, meaning the stress that we encounter isn't managed appropriately through our neurochemistry, what happens is our neurochemistry can become problematic. Our responses can be too aggressive. Our emotions can be too aggressive. We're in too much of a survivalistic mindset that the dumber part of our brain, which is sort of the brain stem and even the limbic system is calling all the shots. And then next thing you know, there may be overreaction. There may be underreaction. There should be things you should be reacting to and you're not because you're under that stress. And so the issue with those sort of natural responses is they can create damage. They can, they create damage in your life in the sense that maybe um, you're yelling too much at people. Maybe you're yelling at the people you work with. Maybe you're yelling too much at your spouse. Maybe you're being too aggressive with the people around you because of the stress you're going through. Or maybe you're just indifferent and you don't even care. And so now things that you should be doing are not happening. And we all sort of give ourselves permission and we say, well, I'm, gonna sur I'm surviving. So whatever happens, happens. Like it's just gonna, that's the way it's gonna be, you know? Like you guys just have to deal with this. And although in the moment that makes sense, the long-term consequences are that we can really hurt and damage relationships. We can damage our, our job. We can damage our, our relationships with our neighbors. We can do a lot of damage um, to the people around us in these survival moments. And, and that's, that's horrible, right? Because we know that we have a social brain and the one thing that helps us get through stuff are, is each other. Like we need a connection from each other to get through what it is. I need, um, you know, my relationships to help me get through a hard time. And so it's horrible that the thing I need, I could potentially push away and damage and hurt. And then at the end of it, when it's not so much survivalist, now I'm looking at a mess in front of me and I'm going, this is horrible. What did I just do? Because now my frontal cortex comes online and I see all the damage. So mindfulness is the ability for my frontal cortex in a moment of crisis, in a moment of stress, to pause the system, to step back, to, to, to pull itself away, and to assess itself and say, how am I doing? How am I reacting? What are my responses? And it's the mind's ability, it's, it's fascinating because it's the mind's ability to assess itself. And it's a, it's a learned skill. 
And if you learn about like uh, child development, this is not something that a child can do because they're still their their frontal cortex isn't developed enough. It actually takes you know probably more toward the twenties where you can really probably even later than that. I almost think they like twenty five, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like maybe even like when you're a parent, you can see like okay, there's a brain system here, it, but it and it definitely happens when you get married too because now someone else is saying your neurology is weird and you're like oh it is I never thought about that it's almost like your spouse becomes your first mindfulness and says this isn't working well but mindfulness is the ability of your brain to pull itself out to pull to create its mind's eye and to look at itself and so it's super important because in that process what you can do is you can mitigate damage when you take a moment and what I see this mindfulness and there's a million different definitions to this I see this mindfulness is is us taking a neurological pause and stepping back. And it, it can be, and it usually has to be done alone or maybe in the, the presence, maybe like a counselor, but in a very safe, secure moment um, to pull ourselves away a little bit and process how am I doing? How is my body doing? What kind of stress am I experiencing? What does this stress feel like? Um, what are the emotions I'm going through? What, 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 are, what are the emotions? And I start giving things name. What are the thoughts that are, that are escaping me? You know, how am I responding to this? Am I over responding? Am I under responding? And so to me, mindfulness is that neurological pause where we step away and we sort of do a self-assessment of our own neurology and saying, how am I hanging in here? Um, and is and very, very helpful. It's a learned response. Most of us don't necessarily do this. So it's something you have to practice. And, be, and you have to be intentional about being mindful, but it really is that pause to say, let me assess myself um, with the intent of making sure that I'm not gonna create long-term damage through this survival moment, through these survival, these hard times that are just kicking me in the butt, that I don't end up becoming my own worst enemy. That my own neurology in its survival mode doesn't become my worst enemy. That, that, that now, because see what happens is there was an original stress, the stressor of you name it, grief, loss, losing a job, those things that are so painful. And, and what we never want is for us to win moments of pain that we go through so much pain that in, an, in a way to try to manage our own neurology, we actually create more pain for ourselves. This is a person who picks up drinking to deal with stress. They have just created so much more pain because of their response to stress than the original stress. This is where we get to sort of process this and say, okay, is there anywhere here where I'm actually becoming my own worst enemy? And if so, I need to figure out how to address it. And that's where mindfulness, that's the world that I believe mindfulness sort of fits in, is that moment to take that pause and assess. It's that selection. I think, you know, you lose something in your house, right? Like your car keys. And so you pause and you retrace your steps. So when I came in from the grocery store, I did this and this and this. It's, it's that intentional choosing to look for what that root of behavior was. Um, because like you said, we can't choose how we were wired. That came to us by how we, you know, how we grew up and how our parents received our needs. But we can choose how we retrace those steps. And I like what you said. It's that intentional choosing of that and, and following that path to the why behind the behavior that we tell parents to do all the time for their kids. Why can't we do it for ourselves? I guess I'm interested in how our attachment styles lean to this. So... Um, you and I have very different attachment styles. We've had a lot of conversations about that. Um, how does our attachment play into all of this wiring? Yeah, so I think um, if, if I was going to sort of overlay attachment theory onto this, um, to make it simple is 
basically, uh, the question is, do I feel secure? Or do I feel insecure? So a lot of this comes back to security. Um, sadly, what happens is in, moment of, in moments of stress, um, you know, there's sort of a, a neurological search, if you will, to am I safe? Am I secure? And that neurological search, once again, falls back at the feet of our, um, of our, early, uh, of our early parents or of our early caregivers. And for those people whose maybe caregivers were maybe abusive or at least um, uh, maybe emotional and, and, and just emotionally charged, um, then when, when I take that sort of back to that, que that question back of do I feel secure, a lot of times my answers will be no, I don't feel secure. I feel anxious. I feel scared. I feel emotional. I feel manic um, or, or in an insecure in situation where I may take that question back of am I secure and maybe I experience neglect or I, feel, I experience a parent who wasn't there for me emotionally, then I don't have a nice place to sort of go back and, and, and in my mind have that place where I go back and say, you know, I, I'm scared, I'm hurting, I'm alone. And then basically because I didn't have anyone there to, to sort of help me manage my emotions, I'm just left with emptiness. I'm just left with the sort of neglect. There's no answers, there's no questions. And then that just creates sort of despondency or feelings of um, helplessness because I'm like, well, what do I do with this? What do I do with this anger? What do I do with this fear? What do I do with this grief? How do I manage it? And so attachment, our, our early relationships really set the stage for us to be able to say, like, you know what? It's going to be okay. You know, if you hear what I'm about to say, it literally is the sound. It's like the words that a parent should say to a child when they're hurting, like, it's going to be okay. Like, we're going to get through this. Um, I love you. You're important. Like, hang in there. Um, you're not alone. Like, you're experiencing emotions. Like, you're angry right now. It's okay. You're scared. Like, these are the words that our parents tell us that then play out in our lives throughout the rest of our life, right? And so when we're talking about stressful times, things that are really scary, you know, we go back to those messages of like, what's, am I safe or am I not? It, do I feel secure or not? And sadly, for many of us, we don't have that history. We don't have those stories of, of parents who were secure to us you know, we may have stories of pain. We may have stories of neglect. We may have stories of people, of parents who are real good at meeting our physical needs, but they were horrible at meeting our emotional needs. Um, and so then what happens is our emotions are crazy or we don't even know how to feel. And all that, um, if not resolved, takes a toll on us. It takes a toll on our relationships. It takes a toll on the way I interact with my kids. It, it plays a, a part in how I, you know, and so although it may seem irrelevant, like, what does my childhood have to do with the stress that I'm dealing with today at 40? And what I'll tell you is it has everything to do with it because your responses to your stress, whether neurologically or even your attachment style is, is basically determined early on in that part of life. Now there is a side note to this. That's if it's not addressed or discovered or is not, looked at or unpacked, you know, that's if, if left to our own devices, that's what happens. But through mindfulness, through counseling, through all the things that people do as they go through self-help, they go through, you know, uh, spiritual journeys, they go through emotional journeys, they, they get married and all of a sudden they have all this stuff that they didn't realize they had. All that begins to address those things to better prepare us for the stress, to, to change 
our trajectory, to change our story. If unaddressed, then the consequences are, are going to be there. But luckily, boy, I mean, that's what healing's about, right? Like that process of growing and journeying. Absolutely. I mean, I'm a huge fan of therapy for that. It's, it's instrumental. And my next question was how we do that for our children if it hasn't been done for us. So, you know, in times of crisis, typically the whole family unit is experiencing that. Um, in times of crisis, you know, we're putting it together for our kids. We're putting on that face. Um, how do we create that felt safety for people that we love? It doesn't have to be our kids. It can be our parents. It can be our grandparents. Um, it can be our partner. How do we create that felt safety if we haven't necessarily experienced it before? Yeah. Well, and that's the that's the work, right? Like that's where the work comes in. And and the work, um, kind of a couple things that I want to share. Um, the first the first one is just vulnerability. Um, that as we experience uh, pain or as we experience grief or we just experience chaos. I mean, maybe there's things where it's not just one thing. It's like just you know, it's one thing after another, another, you know, the first thing is, is we just have to, in that mindfulness, we, we need to take the pause and we just need to be vulnerable and honest. We need to, we need to just say, okay, I'm struggling. This is hard. Um, an unlabeled emotion will wreak havoc on a neur on a neuro neurological system. Like we have to label our emotions. We have to give them names. We have to express them. We have to talk about them. We have to bring them to life. And in that vulnerability, what happens to our neurology is really fascinating. It's like this, it's almost the way I can explain it is like you're jumping on lily pads, you're jumping on lily pads trying to survive, and then when you take a moment and you're like, enough, I'm done, I can't do this anymore. Then all of a sudden you begin to sink, and then you start like, okay, what's real? And then what you want to find is bottom. You want to find truth. You want to find the real. Like if I'm really hurting and I'm acting like I'm not hurting, I'm not doing myself any favors at all by acting like I'm not hurting. If I'm really scared, but I'm, I'm, I'm so afraid of what that means to feel that feeling. I'm just going around like not expressing or experiencing that emotion. Like it's, it's playing, like it's seeping through my pores. My fear is seeping through my pores. Everybody can feel it. But the only person who's afraid to really experience that is me. And so my job is to say, okay, you know what? Forget it. All bets are off. Everything, it doesn't matter. I need to go to where I am. I need to be honest. I need to go to the truth which is really fascinating because that's one of the first steps of attachment is like, be honest. Like what, what is going on? What are the messages in your brain? Are they saying you're safe or are they saying they're not safe? And, and just speaking those things into reality. And then as you become vulnerable with truth and, and, and what's actually happening, then you better very quickly uh, follow it up uh, with love and grace. Like you don't get to just be vulnerable and then be like, Ugh, like I can't do this. I don't know what I'm just done. And then your mind be like, yeah, you're right. You're done. There's nothing you can do. Give up. Because that's not how our systems work. Our systems work is that once we find safety and vulnerability, then we, we basically follow it up with like love, with compassion for ourselves and saying, you know what, Emily, you're right. Like you, you're scared and I get that. But you know what? There's a bigger story here of security. There's a bigger story of safety. And the thing about it is, is we kind of have to look outside of ourselves for the messages that are in the universe, the messages of the people who do love us, the messages of the people who really do care about us, those, those specific people who maybe it wasn't your parents, but somebody hopefully came along in your life that created a message that you matter, that, that, you, have, that you have value, um, that your value is not just based on your education or your job or your, 
you know, what uh, title you have, that your value is more internal than that. This is where um, we may find like a spiritual journey where like Wayne Dyer talks about the source, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous talks about, you know, the higher power, where there's something outside of ourselves that's bigger. And what that is, is love and grace. And so I have to become vulnerable and be honest, but then I have to make sure that I follow that up with the message that says, Bill, you're going to be okay. And most of the time, if I didn't have a good childhood, that's not an internal message. I have to go look for that message outside. I have to go and find people who are going to sort of instill in me um, a, a value, a hope, um, a love, a grace for myself that I wasn't gifted in my childhood, that I wasn't gifted in those early years. And so if you look at my personal life, it's been certain friends, it's been counselors, it's been pastors, it's been um, you know, random people who have just come in in moments of, of crisis and have just kind of held me up and, and walked me through those things. And so in that moment, I need to make sure that I'm, I'm listening to those people. Like you're not doing yourself any, any good if in moments of vulnerability, you follow it up with self-criticism and self-doubt and you just confirm all the fears you have. Like this is, this is the discipline of mindfulness is that I make sure I'm listening to the right people that I make sure that I'm replaying the right messages in my mind to say, you matter, you have hope. Do not look at your current circumstances as a definition of your future. Do not look at, you know, even some of the messages that people tell you in position of power. Maybe it's your boss. Sometimes it could even be your spouse that you have to be like, okay, she's having a bad time. Like I have to be able to pull myself back and say, even though she may not be experiencing me as a positive person right now, like that's not the end all be all. Like if I'm going to do this well, if I'm going to get my neurology online to be able to manage what's in front of me, I have to follow up vulnerability with love and grace. And that's sort of the journey. Brene Brown said, the last thing that you need in the middle of vulnerability is shame for being a human. And I thought that was so good because when we do explore vulnerability, it brings out some dark, dark features. And so just to like look at them and say, oh, this is what it is. And it's okay that that's what it is. This is the experience that I'm having. And it's okay that I'm feeling angry, sad, scared. Feelings are for feeling, Glennon Doyle Melton says. And I love that because the feelings exist for a reason. I think naturally we as humans, when we feel something, we panic and we don't want to feel it. It feels yucky. It feels bad. Our neurology flips on and does flight, flight, or freeze and we freak out. And basically what it is at the end of the day is you have to be brave enough to follow that feeling. You also have to be safe enough to do so. Like what you said, finding people in your life. Um, and I know that there's a lot of viewers that may be watching this and just say, hey, I don't have anyone. I don't have anyone that I can have those experiences with. And that's when you and I both, I know, would recommend seeing a counselor and, and checking in with someone um, because we all need a space to explore those feelings in a safe way. And we just might not have places in our life that we can do that. So once we do that, then that's how we manage our kids. Remember your question, like, how do we manage our kids in the time of stress? It's you do that work internally, and then you're in the right place. You're in the right space to go back and be like, okay, now I have to help my kids in this time. I have to manage the people in my lives who are going through stress. All that stuff is where that happens. So, okay. It's that oxygen mask, right? Like, I can't do it for my kids if I can't do it for myself. It's me first, and then it's them. And I think sometimes with our kids, they have 
such triggering behaviors that there is this point of exploration of like, man, why did that just get all over me um, in this experience? And so I think the mindfulness really does apply there too. Phil, what's one of your keys to exploring your neurology in a safe way? What would you leave viewers with maybe an exercise that you've done or a way that it's been impactful for you? I'm going to be real uh, honest with you. It's, it's not easy. You know, our, our minds um, are um, averse to pain. Like we have a neurology that's averse to pain. And, and part of this is a little bit counterintuitive to be vulnerable. Um, it's sort of the path. It's kind of, you kind of have to go through instead of around. Um, but I do think that um, as I continue to, to just try to be honest, that I, I just be vulnerable to like the challenges of myself, of my own neurology, ways that um, maybe I'm not um, uh, be providing the safety to my children, to my wife, the things that I know are important in times of stress that they need. Um, and so it's humbling. I'll be honest with you. When I take those moments um, to, uh, to pause and, and look, um, I think the one thing I would, I would encourage everyone is don't be afraid to seek the truth. I mean, the truth is, is none of us are perfect and we all have stuff. And so you might as well just be honest about it um, and, and, and follow it up with repair, with with forgiveness and apologies and, you know, being willing to to not assume that you get it perfect, you know, to assume that that you have it figured out um, and, and approach these these anytime you're going through stress with um, compassion for yourself and then also compassion for others and, and forgiveness, honestly. Um, and, and so if, if I could say anything, it's just just make sure you're starting by being truthful. It's going to hurt. It's going to hurt when you realize like, oh my gosh, my reaction to that was so over the top or wow, I completely missed that. Um, and that that's hard, right? Like to sit in that space of like, boy, I messed that up or I'm, a, you know, I do feel alone or I do feel like, you know, and then, and then to sort of, but, but in that truthfulness, then you begin to sort of be like, okay, well, let's figure out how to climb out of this. Let's figure out how to work through this. And what's so cool is as you do that, um, it, the first, the first time you face it, it's really heavy and hard, but then the more you kind of go down that road, then it's easier. It gets easier. It's like a journey of like, Oh, truthfulness, repair, replace, like apologize. Okay. Like, okay, I got to do that. Oh, I got it. Okay. And then you start managing it. And then all of a sudden what's fascinating is all that stuff that you went through in your early childhood, that all those tendencies, all those behaviors, what actually happens is your neurology almost becomes free from those. They're no longer uh, in so much control. You're, you're no longer just reacting. Um, you know, one of the things that they talk about, um, like in the police department, if you're going to be in like an altercation is, is you have to practice, like you have to do training so that you're, you have a different response than your fight, fight or freeze response, right? Because you don't want officers who are running away or hiding, like you need them to respond. And a lot of that comes with training. And it's the exact same uh, recipe for our neurology. Like I have to train my neurology to go there. I have to train my neurology to help pick myself back up. And then I have to go and train my neurology to impact the people around me. Um, and so all of that is, is, is a journey. And that, this process of being honest, of recognizing when I'm going through a hard time, of being willing to be vulnerable, and then following up with love and grace is going to take me the rest of my life to figure out. 
Like I'm literally just going to have to figure it out. Like it's going to be a journey, you know, to, to still replace the old messages that I, I hear from my childhood, to replace the old scripts, to replace the old neurological systems of response that I have. And, and I just have to become a person who's constantly um, looking at it and growing, uh, working through those, working through my demons, earning my security, like all those things um, is, is just part of the journey. And I'll tell you what, Emily, let me tell you the thing that I love. I love when I run across somebody else who's in the same journey. Oh, it's just make, it just, it just fills me, right? Like, I'm just like, oh my gosh, like your vulnerability your the fact that you're willing to acknowledge like your own weaknesses, the fact that you have a, a, a skill set of apology, the fact that you're you don't feel like you're too good for this or you're above this process. Like anytime I find another surgeoner, like another person who's going on a journey, oh man, it just gives me so much hope because I'm like, oh, I'm not the only one who's doing this. Oh, this is so great. Like we're it's gonna we're gonna be okay. And I don't have to look at my I don't have to look at my current experiences to say that there's hope. I don't have to look at, like I said, whether my job, I don't have to look at my relationships. I can look at something deeper and I can see it in the faces, in the eyes, and in the heart of the people that are also on this journey. And to me, it's, oh, I just love that part of it. It's amazing. And I think that it really is one of those things of like, I've been doing the work intentionally for about seven years and there is freedom in someone else saying, I'm in the trenches daily and we'll figure it out one day, but not today. And there's grace in that. And I think that's, Amazing. And I really appreciate you, Bill, today kind of explaining to us the holistic picture of it, right? That there's not these just flying around emotions, that there's a root. Um, because I know with anxiety, um, a lot of times, really any emotional state that we have, it can feel so scary to not understand. And so I appreciate you giving us the whole picture today and helping us reframe our brains and how we look at it. Bill, can you tell our viewers how to stay in touch with you? Sure. I mean, so, you know, at, at Gladney, we have a lot of different trainings with uh, Gladney University. Um, and then also, obviously, um, on our website, Adoptions by Gladney, um, you can always come and, uh, you know, I'd love to interact with people. One of the things that, that we love is uh, social media interaction here at Gladney. So uh, all, it all goes through Gladney, but, uh, but it's such a great opportunity. And Emily, thank you so much for having this conversation with me and, and for being a person who definitely participates in this journey as well. Yeah. Thank you, Bill. And thank you guys for tuning into another episode of Reframed for all of the um, resources that Bill has talked about today and the processes of attachment style and an image of your brain. You can check out your show notes and we will have all of those links for you so you can t continue the work alongside Bill and I. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Reframed. Visit GladneyUniversity.org to access the show notes and learn about upcoming trainings at Gladney University. We'd love your feedback, so please rate, review, and subscribe. Until next time.